My name is Merrill Dubro, CEO of Mark Research. I'm a 35-year veteran of the research and insights community and the host of our podcast, On the Mark. On the Mark is focusing on executives and thought leaders in the world, sharing their insights, strategies, and personal experiences. I promise this podcast will be filled with tough, pointed questions and real, insightful, and emotional answers. Today's guest is my longtime friend, VP of Consumer Insights at McDonald's, Jamie Gunthry. Jamie, welcome to the On The Mark podcast. Thank you, Merrill. Uh, happy to be part of it. Thanks. All right, let's get into it, Jamie. So can you just describe for our listeners your current position and, and the staff that report into you in their roles? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So I'm uh, the Vice President of Consumer Insights and Analytics uh, at McDonald's uh, North America. We have about uh, 20 to 25 staff uh, currently on the team, and it's broken out in in kind of three different pods. One is more of a traditional consumer insights team, uh, working on menu innovation, and advertising development, and um, you know understanding competition. Uh, another piece of the team is more on performance learning, so looking in market of what's working uh, and what's not, uh, so we can do more of what is and less of what isn't. So more of the uh, consumer analytics and market mix modeling and that sort of thing. And then uh, the third piece of the team is uh, kind of way further upstream. We call it foundational insights. So it's, you know, understanding uh, the opportunities that are out there for growth and making sure that we're pointing the organization in that direction. So those are the, those are the three different pods. Oh, that's great. So when you're thinking about it, and I think you said you have 25 staff, is that what you said? Yep. Okay. So, and I assume you're you're going to be adding to that in 2020 and beyond. That's yeah. the plan. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be growing. Um, you know, in the neighborhood of I don't know, 15, 20 percent, uh, depending on piece of the team. But yes, yep. Right. So that's adding. If you have 25, that's average. You know, adding another five folks. Yep. So let's do a couple things. What, in your opinion, Jamie, what makes a great researcher? That's a great question. So, you know, for, for me, I, there, there has to be just a natural curiosity about consumer behavior. You know, so why did someone pick a Pepsi versus a Coke? Why did they decide to go out to uh, lunch today versus stay in? And if that natural curiosity is there, I think it's, you know, it's difficult to kind of drive curiosity, um, you know, in the, in the business place. So I think that's first and foremost, that has to be uh, present. And then secondly, um, you know, it's a it's like visible and vocal thought leadership. You know, there's lots of people in the industry that have great technical skill. There's lots of people in the industry that can project manage and get things to the system on time, on budget, um, uh, with quality, you know, with a high quality output. But to be able to drive it into the organization, teach it so people take action upon it, um, is something that we that we look for. And quite honestly, that's just hard to teach. You know, people, uh, you know, either have great influencing skills and, and, and uh, uh, the ability to influence or, 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 or not. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to teach that inside of a company like this. Okay. And you are, so the five folks that you're going to add to your team in 2020, are you looking for a little bit different skill sets? I mean, obviously social media is more prevalent than it was five, seven, 10 years ago. Having a marketing angle to your background, that may not some, be something that you had hired on as well five, seven years ago. Is that, are you hiring different skills or looking for different skills to add to the team? 
Yeah, I think when you look across the team, and it might not be the you know the five new spots necessarily, but when you look across the team, we're trying to have a um, a better mix of kind of analytic skills, you know, the ability to kind of go into either our first party data sets or any other our data sets and really mine uh, that for knowledge. Um, you know, you, as you might imagine, a company like McDonald's sits on a ton of data from a variety of different sources. And you know, one of the challenges is just being able to, to mine through that either ourselves or with our, with our partners. So that, that's one skill set we're making sure that we're bringing in. And the other one is more, you know, the rise of the social sciences, uh, again, kind of in business. So, you know, psychology, sociology, but the behavioral sciences, making sure that we're really understanding how people are um, behaving in the marketplace um, rather than you know, just focused on, on attitudes. So there's a mix between our internal uh, staff that we're doing that and certainly our uh, external partners that we're working with as well. Now, I know you, know you brought up Coke a few minutes ago, and I know you worked at Pepsi early in your career. Are you a Pepsi guy or a Coke guy? Because you know I'm a Coke guy. You know I'm a Coke guy. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. But are you, which one are you? I'm, I'm still a Pepsi guy. You know, I worked for the company. Um, I was I was there a total of, total of nine years, and it was about half and half uh, as a Quaker Oats company before the acquisition, and then, you know, four or four and a half years post the acquisition. And um, uh, yeah, it was just kind of that preference was beaten into me early on, and now it's actually a consumer preference. Uh, actually, when I left the company, uh, I still always choose uh, a Pepsi when I had a choice. You know, uh, there's an interesting story that you shared with me, um, and I think you should share it with the listeners because it's it's very, very, very shocking to me and interesting, which is I am really particular on my soda. I only drink Coke, and I like it out of a 16.9 or 20-ounce uh, plastic bottle. I don't like it out of a can. I don't like fountain drinks. And I say that, but I will drink once in a while a fountain drink from Coke because it just seems to be a little bit different and it seems to be a little bit better. Why is that? Yeah, so, so here at McDonald's, I mean, we put a lot of um, focus on uh, the quality of the soft drinks or beverages that we sell, and we're you know, one of our largest partners. Um, is uh, the Coca-Cola company, which is the largest beverage company in the world. And so between uh, you know the work that we've done over the years together, we have just mastered uh, the formula, uh, temperature and formula of what comes out of those fountain machines. And those uh, fountain machines are controlled by Coca-Cola. And so uh, you know they're in there on a monthly basis, making sure that the formula uh, is uh, dead on in terms of what's coming out of there. The machines are working and clean. And um, uh, we routinely hear, if you go out and Google, you know, best Diet Coke or best Coca-Cola Coca uh, Coca fountain drink, you'll see tons and comments out in the Twitter sphere about, uh, about um, McDonald's Coca-Cola. So you've been there a year or a little over a year. We probably just celebrated, what, 13-month anniversary, roughly? Yep. Yep. 13 months. Yep. Good memory. What's your most important learning about the business in the past 13 months? I worked for 25 years in, or so in the CPG industry, and there's tons of things that I learned on that side, and there's lots of challenges that that industry faces. But the biggest change coming to McDonald's has been uh, working in a franchisee model. Uh, it's a challenge, and it's, uh, I think, also a strength of the system. 
So, you know, it's hard enough in the kinds of jobs that we have to kind of align an organization around, um, you know, a direction or a launch or, or something that we want to do. But then when you have to align a franchisee system of 1,800 individual owners uh, to that same initiative, it's just, it, it takes a little bit of time. And it takes, you know, some very strong storytelling and influencing skills to be able to kind of turn a ship uh, of this big. So, um, you know, certainly a challenge from an internal alignment standpoint, but I also think it's the power of the system uh, that McDonald's has built here is that you have a big corporate center that is kind of looking across um, the business and seeing the kind of the themes that are in the marketplace. And then you have our 1,800 individual uh, owner operators out in the marketplace interacting with our customers each and every day and seeing uh, things at a highly localized level and feeding that back to the corporation. So I think that's probably the magic of what Raycraft built here back in the 50s is, um, uh, you know, the ability to, to see the big picture, but also be community and local based uh, with how we go to market. When you were a kid, did you did you ever work in a McDonald's? I never did. But, you know, the, the stat uh, is that one out of every eight uh, Amer- U.S. adults have worked at a McDonald's at one point or another. Wow. It's a stunning number. Okay, so let's stay with the numbers because I am – I'm a numbers guy as you know. So why don't you stagger us a little bit with regard to some of the numbers in terms of – that we would be surprised. Because you're what? Uh, how big is the company now? Is it $20 billion? How big is it? Yeah, so globally we're, we're over 90 uh, $90 billion. So, you know, massive company. But when you kind of break it down in kind of consumer terms, you start to understand the, the, the reach of the business. So uh, and I'll just give you a, a few numbers. So uh, in any given month, 44% of the U.S. population uh, will roll through a McDonald's at least once. Uh, on a quarterly basis, that number is 70%. And then on an annual basis, it's, it's high 80s, you know, 88% of the population will visit McDonald's at least a month. So one of the toughest jobs I have as the head of the uh, you know, Consumer Insights uh, group is when, when people ask, like, who's your target? It's literally, you know, everybody. You can just kind of look outside and at one point or another, you know, everybody's going to come up, come into a McDonald's at one point or another. So it's just it's got a it's a massive reach uh, business. And even even though it, uh, we have that kind of reach um, on a monthly basis, you still get 80, uh, 80, 81 percent of the population going out to any QSR or quick service restaurant at least once a month. So, you know, we're only getting about half half of the people on a monthly basis that's going out. So, uh, you know, still a ton of room for us to grow. Are you doing or can you talk about geotargeting? Are you using that as a strategy around lunchtime or breakfast time? Yeah, you see a lot of the world of marketing has become uh, digitized. You, you see kind of this race for people to kind of uh, companies to get first-party data because once you have first-party data, you're able to you know do more one-to-one kind of personalized marketing, both from a messaging standpoint, and then some companies are also using it kind of time of day uh, as well. You know, our model and some of our strength historically have just been able to you know blast the airwaves because because we do have that broad penetration. So we can still do things like out of home and radio and, and, and even TV advertising given our scale and it still makes a lot of uh, sense from a reach perspective and also financially uh, it's quite attractive. But yeah, um, you know, as with the other companies, we're playing around with a lot of the, uh, the, the digital uh, tools as well to see if we can get a better return on those. That's interesting. So when you look back at your career, you've got a very interesting 
um, pool of companies that you've worked for. I mean, I, I would argue Millwood Brown, Pepsi, Wrigley, SCJ, McDonald's. I, I'm not sure there's a better five <laughs> out there. I mean, maybe P&G could, could, could be slip in as well. But I mean, it's a really impressive background. And there's always a debate, Jamie, that you know, is it better to start your career on the supplier side and then go client, or is it better to start your career on the client side and then go to the vendor side, right? Do you have an opinion of that? Because obviously you went supplier and then went client. Which is easier if you had to put a stake in the ground? Yeah, so for at least the time that I was coming out, it was easier for me uh, coming out of undergrad to make my way onto uh, the supplier side. And I had you know, several mentors and a few college professors that had kind of given me that advice. And you know, I certainly found that to be true. So coming out of undergrad, uh, I looked at a variety uh, of the big market research suppliers that were out there. And um, you know, I ended up at Millward Brown for about three and a half, four years. And it was, uh, it was a wonderful experience and it was exactly what I wanted to do at the time. I got not only uh, able to, to learn the, the nuts and bolts of the research industry, you know, how to create a questionnaire, how does the coding process work, the whole tabulation side, uh, and then eventually, you know, like how do you analyze a set of data? As a 22-year-old, you don't get that many reps at that in college. So the functional side of that I thought was uh, outstanding. The other thing that was really valuable to me is I had the opportunity uh, to take a peek uh, inside of a lot of different uh, clients that I worked across. In. Uh, and that ranged from, you know, Phillips Electronics, Public Supermarkets, uh, McDonald's Corporation was one of my early businesses that I worked on, um, Ford Motor Company, a whole host of things. And what I quickly realized was that the role of insights or the role of research inside of uh, manufacturer organizations, there is a wide, wide array, you know, all the way from more of a technical function that kind of just did the work all the way through uh, places that were you know, much more about strategy and, and consulting and, and actually had the technological expertise, but had a, you know, a stronger voice in the organization. And that gave me a really good sense of the kind of place that I wanted to go into then uh, later in my career. So not sure if I answered your question directly, but you know, that's, the, you know, that's the path that I kind of took. And it was just easier for me then to, to give into the client side of the business once I had my feet wet uh, in the industry. And I just, at that point, I had a lot more contacts uh, to, to figure out you know, what it is I wanted to do. So let's stay with your career for a second. I'm going to give you a do-over. You have to do something different, Okay. Um, what would it be? What change would you make? I mean, you had an amazing career. If we forced you that you had to change something, what would it be? Yeah, it's an easy one. I would go work uh, internationally. So I, when I left, uh, so I was part of Quaker PepsiCo for nine years, about half and half um, uh, after the acquisition that Pepsi bought uh, Quaker. And the reason why I went to the Wrigley Company uh, is that I really wanted to get international or global uh, experience. And um, and I did in spades. It was fantastic. But it was all out of Chicago. And you know, I was just fortunate that Wrigley kind of managed the business where I um, uh, could have a global role, uh, people reporting to me from around the globe and and you know that kind of staff and structure, but do so out of Chicago, and so it was a great time. I look back on that, and it's, you know, it's what I wanted, and um, it was fantastic. But if I would have, if I could do it over, I would actually do a role like that where I'm sitting in a different country, 
and it's one part just for myself to you know to acclimate uh, in a different area from a professional and business standpoint, and it's another just from a family standpoint uh, as well. To be able to, I think, live in a different uh, culture in a different place is uh, it's just you know, mind expanding and and eye opening. And if if I were to do it over again, I would do it. I would do that for sure. You know, it's interesting because I, my answer would be the same. The mistake that I made, or if I had a do over, and I've enjoyed my career immensely, only working for seven companies, as I said, but I would work overseas. I think that trying to get integrated in a company with an international spin to it um, and making your mark, I think there's so many learnings and so many takeaways that I just didn't have the opportunity to do it. That would be mine as well. So it's interesting. Who's helped you along the way? I know you mentioned earlier mentors. Can you name like two or three mentors that helped shape your career along the way? And maybe after you left them, they meant more to you because you got a little more maturity and you looked back and realized they were really helping your career with perhaps at the time they, you didn't realize that. Yeah, for sure. And the one, I'll name two people uh, kind of early in my career and then later in my career. So the, f- the first one was um, uh, a gentleman named Scott Hughes, who was uh, at the time a research uh, director at the Quaker Oats Company when I was at Norwood Brown. And just it was funny how it all kind of came about. I was um, I was filling in on the Quaker account for a big presentation on on like how their hot cereal season was performing or something like that. And I walk into this meeting. I'm a really junior guy. You know, I help prepare all the decks, and I just kind of sit in the back row uh, <laughs> with, with my mouth zipped uh, during the presentation, as uh, you know, other people from from Noah Brown shared it. And I watched um, this very young uh, insights person on the Quaker side completely grab the learning that's coming out uh, from our side spinning it in the room so it made sense in context of the business and the other running that they had and kind of steering the thinking and the implications kind of on the spot. And uh, I don't know how old he was at the time. He looked like he was in his late 20s. And he's got all these people, uh, executives, marketing executives in their 40s, completely eaten out of his hand. And it was right then I was like, you know what? I want to go to the client side and I want to do that. Funny thing, as you flash forward two years, I interviewed at the Quaker Oats Company, and I started working for Scott, um, and just kind of kind of fell that way. And he's just been a role model for me my whole career in terms of how he manages people, in terms of how he views the role of the function, and then um, uh, the, the impact that he ends up having inside having inside of an organization. And he looks much more like a Bain or a McKinsey or a BCG consultant in terms of the impact he has inside of an organization rather than, you know, quote unquote, just a researcher. Um, so that's, I've always, my, my, my entire career, I've modeled myself um, uh, after him. Uh, the second person is, uh, is a, a great leader that I met about uh, probably seven years ago now named Salman Amin. And Salman was the uh, chief operating officer of uh, SC Johnson, uh, which is a private company in, in, in Wisconsin. And he really came to, uh, to SCJ from Pepsi. He came from Pepsi to, to drive a kind of a marketing sophistication and a business sophistication inside of what had been a you know, fairly sleepy company uh, for a period of time in a lot of sleepy categories. 
And what Salman taught me, you know, more than anything else, it's kind of like the Mike, Mike Ditka quote, like you give him life what you tolerate. Like Salman had a really, really high bar for himself and the team around him. And because of that, he just pushed that everything that he did, it was literally the best work uh, that would come out. And it just, I, I watched him, you know, set a tone inside of an organization, how to do that for himself, how to do that for his direct team, and how to do that for a very large CPG. And I just felt, you know, every single day I was learning from him, even though I was, you know, pretty, pretty deep into my career at that point. Uh, he's probably one of the best managers I've ever had. Okay, one last question. With May graduation being about four months away, how about one or two pieces of advice to the new graduates who might want to come into the insights world? Any advice that you'd like to leave with them? Yeah, for sure. And I have a freshman in college and a junior in high school, so uh, uh, they don't listen to me <laughs> very much, but uh, yeah, I'm happy to put it on the podcast. So, um, you know, I, I, do, I do see the rise of the social sciences kind of coming back uh, into business and, and doing so in, in, in a big way. And my daughter wants to get into business. She's talked about marketing. And my encouragement to her is to you know, to make sure to look around into things like uh, psychology, make sure she's looking around at things like neuroscience uh, and some of the advances there and some of the degrees that are now starting to come out. And, and I think marketing is going to be some interesting blend. Our marketing, marketing research is going to be some interesting blend between uh, data science and analytics, the social sciences, uh, neuro and, and psychology, and then kind of a traditional uh, uh, you know, marketing degree. And so finding programs that focus in on that, I think we'll just, I think we'll set people up well, kind of jump out of the industry and, and, and join, the, uh, uh, join the industry. The other, the other area that I just find interesting too is, and, and is you know, all the Ehrenberg Basta uh, by Aaron Sharp. And I know that sometimes he can, he can be a, a little bit uh, too much for some people. But when you take a look at like what they're doing with data science and looking at the behavior themes that they see across categories, I think there's just some really, really interesting stuff that's starting to change the minds of how uh, you know, we used to think about marketing towards attitudes and perceptions and all that sort of stuff and really focusing on, on behavior. So I would encourage people to you know, kind of pick up Byron's book, How Brands Grow, uh, and then, you know, if they're going into, into college or their MBA, is to start thinking a little bit more about the social sciences. Jamie, thanks again for your time today. You've been listening to Jamie Gunthry, Vice President of Consumer Insights at McDonald's on the On The Mark podcast. Jamie, great job. Have a good day, everybody. Thanks, Meryl. All right, bye-bye.